Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. Have you heard of Sweet Spot? It's a great new app. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite experiences, whether you're documenting a recent vacation that you took, whether you're keeping track of your favorite restaurants, or you're sharing a list of your city's essential museums and monuments. Sweet Spot for iPhone is built for you. You can use the app to follow friends, family, your favorite actors, artists, chefs, whatever you want, and then... When building your own curations, you can pull in photos from Instagram, from your Facebook, and uh, you can pull in locations from Google Maps, and then you use tags and text to tell a story. From there, you share those curations to Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, Google+, what have you. Sweet Spot is incredible, and it's a little different from other apps in that it wants you to be really thoughtful. It wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments Oh, and one more thing, it's free. You can download Sweet Spot for iPhone for free right now in the App Store. So go get that. This is an app. You can download it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a series of ones and zeros. This has probably never been listened to on a speedboat. How's it going out there? How are you? Are you on a speedboat? Are you reading speedboat? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It, it, uh, it would be weird if you were reading speedboat on a speedboat. I should say that. And uh, I should also say that I'm very pleased and honored to have Stuart Dybbuk on the program today. Uh, he's the award-winning author of several books, including Childhood and Other Neighborhoods, The Coast of Chicago, and I Sailed with Magellan. Over the course of his career, he's received a wide range of honors, including uh, a Lannan Prize, a Guggenheim, a MacArthur Fellowship, among other awards, and he is generally regarded as a modern master of the short story. So Stuart and I will be talking in just a bit. Uh, I should note that I'm approaching my uh, 300th episode. We're getting close. And that is essentially the three-year mark for this program, if you can believe that. How many of you have actually listened to this show from the beginning? I have to wonder. There's at least 12 of you. <laughs> and uh, over the course of the past three years, it occurs to me that I think I've only missed one episode due to a uh, like a family health thing. So what is that? That's like 156 consecutive weeks holidays included, 
doing this show twice a week, delivering high quality content to the consumer. I guess I feel good about that. And you know what the truth is that I probably spend too much time thinking about the value of this thing. And I suppose that's natural because, and and writers can relate to this, particularly those of us who work on books, long form stuff, hours and hours and hours. Uh, You know, you spend a lot of time on something. It's natural to wonder if it was time well spent. What does it mean? Does it mean anything? Will this be useful to anyone down the road? Or uh, is it just as disposable as everything else that rises and falls in the world and in particular, uh, in the context of this podcast on the internet, digitally, digital media. So I don't, you know, it's not for me to decide, right? It's out of my hands and, you know, everything ultimately is disposable, but you know, in the age of, uh, you know, online living, (laughs) there is sort of a shift you know, if you, if you try to imagine like 300 years from now, assuming that the planet is still inhabited by human beings, you think about how much stuff is going to be available. Will this stuff, the stuff that I'm making now, is it still going to be out there somewhere? I don't know. Does it matter? Probably not. Almost certainly not. And, uh, you know, who even knows where we'll be technologically at that point? It's very strange to think about and maybe even a little bit scary. I'm imagining a singularity. I'm imagining, you know, the melding of humanity with its technology in an invasive way where it's like in your body. It's like implanted in your brain. That's got to, it's going to happen, right? That's where we're headed. So, uh, imagine right now, if we had access to 300 years of content in human history online at our fingertips, and I'm talking in particular about personal content. Just this weird, like ephemera. Imagine if like Abraham Lincoln had a blog when he was a teenager. (laughs) Or like Ben Franklin had a podcast. I don't know. I guess it's interesting. Or maybe because there's so much of it, it just renders it all worthless or something. But, you know, this is how I've spent a good amount of time over the past three years. And I think what I'm trying to do uh, right now is uh, assess that. So what else? I don't know. I've been working a lot. I was in a coffee shop the other day. Feeling, I feel sort of like an idiot. Anytime I ride in public, I feel sort of like an idiot in Los Angeles in particular, because there's so many people riding in coffee shops. I mean, this, this town is, you know, it's main business. It's main industry is the creative arts, uh, along with weaponry. <laughs> I just read that. It's like, you know, movies and weaponry. That's Los Angeles. So, you know, I just feel bad. I'm sitting there. I feel a little self-conscious. And then I also feel weird, like spending $3 on like a cup of tea. And then, uh, you know, that's it. And then I'm there for like five hours and I feel like I'm being clocked. I feel like the person behind the counter is silently resenting me for spending so little and then spending so much time, you know, that guilt, but it's probably, you know, I don't know. It's the way it goes. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, 
a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is uh, Stuart Dibbick. It's a great pleasure to get a chance to talk with him and to have him here on the show. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is the great Stuart Dibbick. I'm mainly living in Chicago at this point, but I, I, uh, I still have a, a studio here that I, that I worked in for uh, the vast majority of the time that I taught at Western Michigan University. Okay. So it, it's, it's loaded with old notebooks and... So is it like uh, a, is it like a graphs and envelopes? Yeah, and I and a, a huge record collection and uh, tons of books of poetry, etc. So it's uh, there. There's there's still that presence here. Okay, so is that like a writing retreat for you? Like, do you get yeah, you get yeah. you get out of the city in the summer and go up there and exactly yeah. Okay, so uh, and Chicago. I mean, it's a, it's impossible to talk to you without talking about it and. Uh, it's been in the news lately, and I, I, my sister lives there. I love the I love the city. I love going to visit. It's a great town, um, but it feels like there's this uh, this kind of dichotomy at work, you know, where everybody loves to love Chicago. It seems like, but yet at the same time, it's in the news a lot for being a really violent place, and there's a lot there's a lot of dark stuff going on. So, like, how do you feel about it all, being an, uh, a native and you know somebody who spends a lot of time there? Well, I, I grew up in the inner city, so that kind of leaves a, a feeling with you, with one, I think, where as long as you're not there anymore, it's safer. <laughs> I, I don't know if that makes any sense. In other words, I, I, I think I have a... It, it isn't that I'm not aware of all the all the violence that's going on in the city, a lot of it, in fact, is going on in what would pass from my old neighborhood, uh, which is very ganged up. Uh, or places where I had been a caseworker. But um, the causes for that are, are certainly not new. And the... You know, in a sense, this urban environments have always been that way. That that doesn't excuse them, but it, for me, puts them in a context that so long as the conditions that have always existed there are going to be there, are not going to be addressed, that is, better schools, better employment, less uh, prejudice, a more fair court system, 
that's just go- those are the causes and, and the effects are going to exist. Well, and it feels like when I go to Chicago, I mean, I guess I could say this for about a lot of cities, but like when I visit Chicago, I don't feel unsafe. You know, the places that I go, you know, it doesn't feel, I guess that's part of my question or part of my, part well, of one my, of the, yeah, one of the reasons for that is it, it remains a segregated city. More so than others, you think? I think because of, because it's had that history. I some I mean, I suppose, um, that rather than talking about race, one can talk about a kind of uh, class, um, and there are certainly sides, in some ways, sides of the same coin. But um, Chicago's always had a segregated South Side, and vast stretches of the West Side of the city, and the effect of that is that. Um, with the exception of the University of Chicago and Hyde Park, most people who go to that city uh, as tourists are are entering the parts of the city that have the theaters and restaurants and hotels, and 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 none of those parts of the city are are appearing in, in uh, what I've been calling the segregated areas. Yeah, I know. And, uh, I, I went well, on. I mean, a, different. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm you're, sorry, you're, you're speaking to my experience because I've been there, and that's been basically where I've wound up. You know, just as a function of being there as a guest or as a visitor. But I did. I do remember going on a bike ride. I took a bike out. This is kind of a a rookie move, but I took a bike out and rode up the coast of uh, Lake Michigan, and I was like, "This is so great!" I was flying because I had the wind at my back. <laughs> Right. All the way south, and then I had to turn around and ride back, and the wind was like in my face on the way home, and it, it took about you know four times as long. But that's the only time I've ever gotten down towards uh, Hyde Park. You know, that was it. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I you know the funny thing is that a lot of the writers that one associates with the city, not all of them, but uh, but quite a quite a few of them, Bello, sure, uh, James Farrell, um, Gwendolyn Brooks. Richard Wright, so on and so forth. They're all they're all from the South Side, and I think one of the one of the reasons for that is that it's so industrialized there, and there's such a such a huge sense of of um, working class and underclass that's congregated on the South Side that writers that Topics that writers gravitate to, which are class, assimilation, um, race, ethnicity, that's always been a kind of a cornucopia right. for those, for those, you know, what, what really are the grand themes of American literature. Um, the, the enormous barrio that... Um, Maybe only L.A. competes with uh, in the United States. One of one of every five people in Chicago is of uh, uh, mainly Mexican descent, but, or you know certainly uh, Hispanic, because there there's also a Puerto Rican community and a lot of Central. At this point, there's this uh, huge migration from Central America as well. But um, but 
but that's all on the south side. So, um, you know, now you have to also realize that um, there's a south sider giving you this version of the city. Um, well, so what was your south side like? I mean, as a child. Well, I, I grew up in I grew up in an area called Pilsen, which was named after the city Pilsen, and what was then Czechoslovakia is now the Czech Republic. But by the time I was living there, it was uh, heavily Slavic. Uh, there were uh, still that strong check uh, my sense of Czech migration, uh, but it was uh, there were also a, a a huge Polish community, and um, at the same time, it, it was the migration from Mexico um, was was going on. So it was a port of entry neighborhood. It's all—I mean, it began as a port of entry neighborhood. It is today a port of entry neighborhood, um, but one that's uh, in competition with gentrification. Uh, that gentrification was absolutely not going on when I was there, um, but certainly uh, a whole new wave of immigration that is Hispanic was uh, was clearly going on when um, my Polish immigrant grandmother, who couldn't could had very very limited English. I mean, we we mainly communicated <laughs> in our own made up language, but. Um, when her tenants finally moved out, who were also uh, Polish immigrants, from her ground floor apartment on 17th Street, which was right across from the railroad tracks, um, the tenants who moved in were Mexican. Was there tension? I mean, was there tension between... No, no, not, not... Well, it depends who you talk to. And I think you kind of have to go family by family. Uh, they... In in uh, in our family, none. In the neighborhood I was growing up in, um, Mexicans and I, I grew up uh, right from a gigantic across from a gigantic housing project. And at the time I was growing up, the tensions in that neighborhood were not um, had nothing to do with. Um, ethnicity. There were enormous racial tensions. I mean, but, but they, but, but they, they ran along, um, lines of white and black, but they, but the tensions between the Mexican community, which, which was growing and, and the, uh, and the, uh, basically Slavic community, uh, in my experience, we're not great. Now, the reason I keep saying in my experience is that when I then read accounts of growing up there by Mexican, now Mexican-American writers, I can see in those writers that I might be painting a too rosy a picture. That is that what was going on in the playgrounds and classrooms where I didn't see it was not the same thing that was going on in the households where they were having problems with economies, with landlords, with getting jobs, right. with fair pay. You know, in other words, all those things that I would not have perceived 
as a kid or even a teenager because I was more interested in who was on my softball team and it was totally mixed. Who was I playing sports with? Who were my buddies? Right. What? So, so you know, so 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 I mean, I I, I want to make it clear that I that that I'm not trying to pontificate from that limited point of view. Um, I'm, I'm because I that's one reason that you read the writers. Sure. Is that you you find out all the stuff that 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 you 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 had not your your own point of view was not sufficient was not sufficiently empathetic. And so, and in, in in your particular household, you mentioned your grandmother, which I, I love this. Uh, I love this idea of like having uh, a grandparent with whom you feel uh, great affinity and love and affection, but yet you have uh, a language barrier, uh, mm-hmm. and how that relationship can be strong in spite of that. That's that's some powerful stuff. I mean, you know, she she was really one of one. You know, if somebody said, "What were the most powerful presences in your life?" and even if they qualify that statement what were the powerful influences on you becoming a writer the answer would be the same that particular grandmother why who we call Nabusha. her absolute non-americanness it it there was a, a a way of feeling a way of expressing yourself that was that, that didn't need language, <laughs> that when you chose language, <laughs> almost made, it was, I, I've always wanted language to be like music, that somehow you didn't have to speak it to get the emotion. <laughs> right. And here was an example that somehow we, we were speaking, and yet the emotion was was not exactly directly related to the to the broken english broken polish um i i you know i can't exactly articulate it but it 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 um when i i mean this is like going to seem like a weird jump but when i came upon not t.s Eliot's idea of an objective correlative that is that to express through words the, the need to express through words shades of emotion that words themselves, that is, i.e. diction, can't express. So in other words, if I say I'm lonely, in conversation, everybody understands what that means. If I say on a page, Jack is lonely, the reader will pick that up. But as a matter of fact, we 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 have how many shades of loneliness are there? And what are, for me, what a writer finally wants to do is convey to a reader a shade of loneliness on such a personal, refined level that 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 the word itself is it, it, it's just too broad and 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 and, and clumsy for it. And so, what you do as a writer is you find um, imagery and scenes and things that happen on a plot that uh, are what uh, uh, Elliot calls an objective correlative. That is, you, you, you find other, you find a ways to objectify 
emotion loneliness. Well, and it's uh, ma- it's making sense to me though, because I'm thinking about your grandmother, and I'm thinking about this claim that you know she was one of the most the, the strongest influences on you becoming a writer. And I'm thinking about being a child and trying to communicate with her, uh, you know, without language, <laughs> and exactly. and having to read her person, which would be excellent training for a writer. You know, trying to like glean what she's thinking and what she's feeling from visual information only. And the, see, I mean, the entire neighborhood was that way, because there there was because there was this gigantic population in the neighborhood of immigrants. Didn't matter where they're from. In fact, um, somebody a zillion years later wrote a was writing a piece about immigrant about writers who write about immigration about immigrants, and um, one of the ways they characterized my writing was pan-ethnic. You know, in other words, that I, 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 it, what, what I came away from wasn't exactly an allegiance to Polish-American households. It, it was an allegiance to the immigrant sensibility. And it, one of the reasons was is it, it, it wasn't a matter of not speaking Polish or not speaking uh, uh, Spanish or not speaking this language or that language. It was... It was it, it was the sense of growing up in an American community where everybody was trying to assimilate, but hadn't managed to do it yet. Right. And so you had a you kind of always had this feeling of a foot in each camp, and of 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 actually understanding their experience without having the language necessarily. At least the understanding that there was a that there was a second kind of an American experience going on here that wasn't homogenized, that wasn't franchised, that wasn't McDonald's, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't Leave it to Beaver, that, that wasn't what was on television. Uh, you, you know, uh, that, 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 certain, that certain kind of a fake sense of, a, of America that, um, that uh, TV, TV, especially TV of the I, I, I mean, TV has changed enough at this point that if you turn on all these HBO shows, you're you're going to start getting. At this point, what what, what writing has always has, has always tried to give a reader, which is a, a more realistic sense of, of 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 all these different cells and these different words. And you know, the other thing, going back to your. Uh, earlier comment about what kind of city Chicago might be is it's it, it is, and I use the word segregated and I'm, I'm not I'm not backpedaling on that word but to, it, it's it's a bit of an over it well it's more than a bit of an oversimplification because the other kind of city Chicago has always been and this speaks very uh, directly to what I'm trying to articulate about the place I grew up in is that it's a city of neighborhoods. Right. No, I, I definitely yeah. get that little, feeling. Little tiny villages. Uh, you, you know, you still get that in New York. Uh, I, you don't quite get the... There's, it seems to me um, that in New York, the borders are a little bit... can be a little bit more fluid. But, um, so, you know, my, I mean, my neighborhood went from a Slavic village to a to a Mexican village, 
and and there was this time, uh, and I grew up there at a time when it was in between. I, I could actually watch the transition. I could watch the same churches because there was so much overlap in the churches and in the bars, <laughs> not in the food. <laughs> right. <laughs> Come on in, guys, with those tacos. I, mean, <laughs> I was going to say, that's great. It was such a wonderful revelation. Yeah. <laughs> What's this beautiful thing I'm eating? <laughs> Goat? Cabrita? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Right. Yeah, because like, what's the Polish? What's po- I mean, Polish food? It's like the uh, what you call it, the pierogies and stuff like that. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there, it was, but it was uh, it was really dumbed down Polish food. I mean, if you go to Poland, you, it's revelatory. Uh, I mean, a lot of game and way more vegetables and so on and so forth. You, you know, in Chicago, it's kind of boiled down to a kielbasa and a pierogi. Yeah, <laughs> but. But not so with the, not so, I mean, and it's true, Mexican uh, cuisine and, and the cuisine in, in Little Village and in Pilsen was largely Tex-Mex. But there, you know, they, you would just be getting, <laughs> you'd just be getting these things. And then you'd be getting uh, that, 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 that you had never dreamed of until you, you had them in this little beautiful corn tortilla in your hand. And, uh, and the smells all changed. Uh, you know, there'd just be these fabulous smells blasting out of these little greasy spoon-looking places. So it, 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 it was quite wonderful. But there were a lot of overlaps. The, the beer, for instance, the, the, the beautiful Mexican beers, they all came from the fact that there was a big German, German community in Mexico, and they, they learned brewing from German immigrants there. Right, right. Well, no, um, isn't like the... Uh, a lot of the music had, uh, had that, that polka quality to it. I was going to say, yeah, the mariachi music or the, the exactly, whatchamacallit exactly, music uh, is Germanic. Exactly, exactly right. And, and I mean, there were times when I would embarrass myself by standing in front of a bar that where the music was pouring out in the dead of winter. <laughs> and I'd, you know, I'd be talking about this polka or that polka, and then we go in the bar. <laughs> It would be. This absolutely wasn't Polish. That was funny. <laughs> well, so, uh, this sounds sort of ideal. To, I mean, or idyllic to it's me. Great. I loved. I, I I loved it. I, I, you know. I mean, I always had. I, I survived it. If you survive it, <laughs> it, it's wonderful. I, I I mean, what what you don't want to do is create this uh, haze of nostalgia. Uh, that that uh, because it, it it was hard living. For, um, I mean, a lot of my friends didn't make it, and uh, by what drugs, uh, violence, just, what? Just uh, yeah, just everything. Uh, 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 growing up in broken families, impoverished families, uh, with um, the um, in that in that neighborhood, you didn't. You didn't uh, automatically think that once you got out of high school, the next step was you were going to go to community college or to college. The next step mostly was you joined the service. Sure. And um, so, it, you, know, you know, a lot of, there was, uh, uh, my parents didn't finish high school, for instance. Yeah, what did they do? Uh, and, well, my, I mean, my father finally went, he had to drop out of school at 16 in order to support the, fam- the, 
immigrant family uh, that he uh, grew up in. I've written about this a lot, so I mean, I kind of hate to repeat my own stories. Sure. But it, it was um, his father and ended up in the um, and died there in the um, what was really the state. Um, well, nobody was so polite to call it the, the state mental health, health hospital. It was just called the nut house. And so it was a huge, uh, for the family, it was a, um, a real mark of, of defeat of sorts. But in, in any case, um, my, my, my father finally finished his degree in night school. Um, I don't, so, you know, it was, a, it, I, I guess the point I'm making is that uh, a lot of things that middle-class families take for granted were, were not, in fact, taken for granted there. You, you didn't necessarily finish high school. You didn't necessarily, you certainly didn't necessarily go to college. And, um, were your parents, were your parents encouraging you educationally? To absolutely. Abs- yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It okay. was, that, that was, that was a, a part of the uh, family I grew up in. And, um, that made an enormous difference. Yeah, it does. And then but, but did, I, were you a good I, yeah. student? No, I was not. I was, I was a middling okay student and, um, stuff that interested me. I was, I was good at and. Uh-huh. I, you know, um, Brad, I'm, 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 I'm writing a whole, uh, it's about 90 pages of it. I've been published in all kinds of different magazines, um, called, uh, St. Stewart. It's, I don't know whether to call it a memoir yet or whether I'm just going to call it a novel, even though the, I've decided that the central character has my name. But yeah, I'm, I'm, it's a subject that that I'm writing on. It, it, it's a it's a Bildens Roman of sorts. Um, so it so I, I've got that kind of strange feeling as we're speaking. That, that I don't know whether I'm I, I'm kind of having a conversation here or whether I'm repeating stuff that I've right. recently written. Right. And it, it it's a it's a kind of a weird dissociated disassociated feeling that I'm sure any, anybody, everybody who writes understands having. Well, and is it, is it, I mean, I, you know, obviously there's autobiography in your fiction and this thing that you're working on now, um, you said might wind up becoming a novel. Um, but is it, you know, to, to try to work at least in something of a, a memoir vein? Uh, yeah, well, it's the stuff that I've published out of it. I've actually uh, published as nonfiction. Uh, I mean, legitimately so. A Playboy did a a piece not not all that long ago called Three Minutes about uh, boxing and CYO and but I I mean all the things we're talking about right now which is a neighborhood culture uh, cultural centered are, are are in that novel who you know who what what are the guys doing in the neighborhood what are the girls doing in the neighborhood um, that kind of a thing and and um, f- for me. Um, some of the books that that have had a real influence on on the way I've thought about stuff uh, were those uh, a lot of those books that came out in the late '60s, '70s about education, uh, up the down staircase, etc. And um, 
when you asked me about Chicago and the violence, one of the factors I named immediately was the problems in the schools. Um, and a hero of mine, going back to the University of Chicago, was, was Dewey, um, who I don't know anybody who wrote more eloquently or persuasively about how in a democratic wannabe society, one of the few real equalizers you have when it's also a capitalist society are, are schools, right. education. So, you know, we then kind of naturally gravitated to the subject of whose parents, you know, what, what, when I talked about surviving that neighborhood, how does one survive a neighborhood like that? Well, one of the main ways is you get an education. And, and you know, not every, that wasn't available to everybody. And, and not because, not necessarily even because um, there weren't schools for them to go to, but because the home environment was such that it didn't see any value in it. Or they had to, or go, to, or they had to go to work to help support, right? They had to go to work or there was not enough discipline in the household so that the kids studied. You know, I mean, whatever, whatever it was that uh, everybody knows that the um, relationship between family and school is critical. So uh, all those things are... Um, I, and and I, I, one of the writers who's, who, um, Richard Rodriguez, writes just so beautifully about how if it, yeah, I mean, he's talking about Mexican culture, but I, I mean, it, it's really true about almost any immigrant culture is that the, the child going to school and being educated as an American is suddenly now having a very different relationship with his or her family. Um, so, um, but in, in, in my family, and I'm talking about the extended family here, which was enormous, that was all very, very much applauded. Well, see, it's interesting. It brings up an interesting point because, you know, you have, uh, you know, things like socioeconomic status, money, you know, like if the, if uh, a succeeding generation is supposed to do better than the one that came before it. But then, you know, if you're a child of, uh, people who have struggled and you go on to do very well, that's all, that's all wonderful, but it can also divide. And I, you know, I think that's well-documented people talk, you know, we've heard that talked about, we've seen that played out in movies and read about it in novels and whatnot. But, uh, one of the things that people don't necessarily talk about as much, or I haven't heard talked about as much is the way that education can sometimes, um, divide and there can be fear associated with that. You know, like your family applauded it and they wanted to see you, uh, you know, go beyond and get your degree and do all these things. But some families, I think, um, you know, the prospect of that might frighten them because they can feel the distance that it creates or something. Is that I mean, do you, do you understand what I'm getting at? Yeah, I saw it constantly. And um, it, it's... The, the allegiances that um, the child or young adult have to have to try to conform to besides family when you've got neighborhoods that gang up that get ganged up the allegiance then to gangs is even more uh, more brutal so far as trying to 
quote-unquote better yourself. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, so it's a variety. It's a variety of competing allegiances there. Right. That, that um, a, a kid has to be fairly sophisticated and mature on some level to, to sort out. So you had your fam, but you had your family encouraging you. Did you have friends that you felt were threatened by your pursuit uh, of an education? Did you feel? No, not not really. I I I, um, I, I remember it uh, only as my realization that the family I grew up in were encouraging this, and I suddenly could see that you know my a, a really good friend. I'm not going to name names here, but I mean names come rushing to mind. Uh, it, couldn't have had a couldn't have had an idea that was uh, less like mine, and, uh, and it was a kind of you know, instant lesson learned. I picked up right away um, the, 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 the basic notion that wow, so and so coming out of his house is not thinking along the lines of me coming out of mine, and um, so so that was. That was pretty clear to me. And so, I, uh, just to shift gears a little bit, uh, you know, because we—I mean, I'm still going to stay with Chicago, and and I want to talk about it, and you know, the sense of place that you're uh, so often noted for when it comes to your fiction. How people uh, point to like you know mastery of detail, and and you know those kinds of phrases. Uh, I'm curious to know if you have a really good memory. I'm always I'm always interested in this when it comes to writers who. Uh, become so closely associated with a place and whose work um, is so vivid in uh, depicting a certain place. Like, do, do, can you recall things better than most people, or is it something that you've really had to work at? Well, can we preface it by saying that one of the great delusions that all human beings have is that they have great memories. <laughs> and, you know, it's been... They're, they're just, I don't think we need any more scientific studies. But some people really that, do. That, some people really but, can remember. All right, so, all right. so that said, uh, maybe it's just a pathetic attempt on my part to get out of sounding like I'm bragging, but I, I mean, I have, I have friends who've, who've noticed it, you know, writer friends, one of whom was, was kidding around calling it the great strength. But it it's that, you know, we'll get together and we'll start telling stories. And, and I, 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 do have the, I do have a huge, a powerful sense of recall. I'm one of those people who claims you can remember beyond what the age that you're generally supposed to be able to remember. And, you know, I, I, to a degree where it's fascinated me in and of itself, and so I've, I've done a bunch of reading on it. Um, and one of the one of the things that fascinates me about the literary arts is that so, so much that has to do with technique and craft is also has to do with, with how mimetic something can be. So, for instance, why do we tell stories? Because they make us remember now, one of the reasons that memory can be so dicey is that once you're telling a story, you'll change things in order to make that story coherent for yourself, um, which is what all 
so many trials are about. Uh, besides the fact that people just don't not lie. But um, one of the reasons that we have rhyme is that you, you'll learn a song when you're five years old that you remember the rest of your life because you go by the rhymes. That, so I, I think I've, in some sense, I've always been a storyteller. And the fact that just the way I'm wired is that I naturally put things for myself in a narrative, which isn't to say that every human being doesn't do the same thing, whether they're dreaming. I mean, um, that's one of the things memory is, is memory is stories, the way we remember stories that we've told ourselves. And a, a lot of people don't think of it that way, and, and, and they think that it's basically some great way of recalling the facts and that history itself is a great way of recalling the facts. And of course, history is is somebody making up stories right. about about what happened. So you know, and then when you go back to the primitive, quote primitive, they're amazingly sophisticated. But the Iliad and the Odyssey and all these epics that that were told rather than written down, or told before they were written down. One of one of the one of the roles of the of the writer or the storyteller in the tribe was re, was remembering not just the personal history but a but a history of the tribe. So that relationship between memory and writing and are you still there? Yeah, yeah, you know, you just dropped out memory and writing. The relationship okay. between memory and writing and memory and writing and memory and narrative. Uh, as well as memory and poetry, um, we've come in the 21st century to think of poetry as so dominated by the lyric. But, uh, I mean, of course, at one time, poetry was really epic. So, um, I yeah. mean, all of, all, of the, all of that is, 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 deeply, is deeply intermingled. And um, I, when I began writing, one of the things that uh, I'm not saying this in any way of hurt feelings or even in self-defense, but I mean, there, there were reviews that complained about the fact that I wrote a lot about children. And one of the reasons I was writing about children was, was that, that for me, I was fascinated by childhood. And one of the reasons I was is I could remember it so clearly. Like you, I, like I when, had, it, when, it, when it comes to, in, it, in fact, I put it in the title of my first book of stories, "Childhood in Other Neighborhoods" was the, the title. But I, I was, I mean, it was partly. Uh, I, I didn't expect the reader to, to get this or not, but it was partly for me, a ad, admission or a or, or an, something in the title that's saying, "Look, I, I, I have this." Uh, uncanny sense of this stuff seeming like it was just yesterday. I see it really vividly, and I'm writing these stories about it. So, okay, yeah, because that's interesting, because I feel like some people, when you say they have a great memory, it's like facts and figures. They can remember numbers. Yeah, that's uh, but, a different kind of memory. That's not a narrative memory. Yeah, your memory is you can remember, like, entire conversations and how things played out on the playground. Well, I, I think I do. Yeah. I, but I, I, the, the way I remember, the way the vividness is coming from the fact that I've created narratives about it. And I, I mean, I remember Toby Wolf, who, 
who I, I think is a, a, a writer I would immediately point to as somebody who's got clearly a, a writer who's got a huge memory. Uh, Toby's saying that when he sat down to write a memoir, he was actually writing, finding a, a literary form that allowed him to write down a lot of stories he told over a lot of, a lot of years. And so I, I think that when you have that, I don't even want to call it a knack. I'm, I'm more comfortable with just saying that if you're wired so that you're sitting at a bar and you're the guy's, one of the guys is the rock contour. And, at, you know, at the end of an evening of, of meals or of, rather than when you're damn tired of talking about politics and every other thing, you just want to sit there telling stories. Right. And, and, and by, by the way, I, I want to make a jump here, a little digression to say, and that was really typical of where I grew up. People came out at, at the end of the evening because they didn't have air conditioning during the summer, and they sat on their front stoops and on curbs and on fences, and they drank these big glass quarts of beer, and they just told stories. And, and when, I, when I read about an area of the country that's a, that, that rightly prides itself on, on, on having right, true writers a place, that's the South, one of the first things, almost any Southern writer, whether it's Capote or Welty or Faulkner, is going to tell you is that I grew up where people told stories. It was also hot. And, <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking no, no air conditioning, you're outside, what else are you going to do? You're out there, what else are you going to do? You, you know, you don't, you're going to tell these stories. And, but I mean, all, all, you know, the, over and over again, writers are saying the same thing. We just sat out there and we told stories. Well, the stories are all based on memories, and it really means you're, ter- you're, turning, you're turning memory into narration. And, and after a while, you, the, the line between them becomes blurred. And a, as a matter of fact, the line between... <laughs> between the storyteller's urge to tell a better story and the memoirist's urge to tell what really happened becomes blurred too. Yeah. And, and this was um, and this was in you from a young age like were you thinking I'm going to I'm going to write It was it was totally unconscious. Okay. When did it become I, conscious? I, I first recognized it when I joined the Peace Corps and I was in training at Syracuse University to go to Malawi, which I want to add I never got to. But um, that, that's really not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that one of the ways that people get to know each other is by telling stories. And it was the first time that I realized I had better stories than a lot of the people from other parts of the country. The people I could see who had really good stories were the people from the South and the people from New York, New York City. And that, and then when, when we all got to telling our stories, the, the ones that were really funny, the ones that really stuck in your mind, the ones that were horrifying, et cetera, et cetera, were coming from these three parts of the country. And it was the first time that I realized something I had taken absolutely, for, not, not even taken for granted, because when you say you've taken something for granted, you're at least aware of it, something I had been unaware of. I thought the whole world sat on their front stoop at night, <laughs> night after night and night, and told these crazy stories. It was the first time I realized they had currency. And at that point, I began to realize what it was that had attracted me to Studs Lonigan, to Farrell, to Algren. That I, I mean, I, I hadn't, I, I liked those writers by this point. I was out of college. I'd read them. 
and you'd gone favorite, and you went big to favorites of mine, but but I had never made the connection that what they were writing about in their neighborhoods. I mean, it was stupid. I should have. It was so obvious. But I never made the connection that was, what was going on in my neighborhood it was the same stuff that I liked on the page written by these um, by these guys. You know, I hadn't read a lot of as much Bellow as I would later. I mean, later on, I really read a ton of Bellow and just gigantic admiration because of the stylistic ability that that, that man, what that man could do with language. Yeah, but. Um, so, you know, it was a kind of a gradual evolution, um, but, but it, there, was, there was also a permission uh, involved in that recognition that, hey, hey, these things that I just took for granted that were all about having a, great, a grand laugh and kind of um, buddy-ish glue could actually be turned into um, head currency. Yeah. Well, and, and did you, I'm curious to know, like with like the oral, you know, kind of this oral tradition going back to childhood in your neighborhood, if when you sit down to write, um, you know, do you ever, do you, are you a person who reads his work aloud? Is it important to you that your work read well aloud for that? Yeah. I, I, uh, I don't even know I'm doing it then. I mean, one of the reasons I, we started off talking about this little writing studio I, I was able to have in Michigan, you know, they, I didn't have to disturb everybody by playing the same piece of music over 500 times while I mumbled. Right. <laughs> mumbled aloud. That sounds familiar. But, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think, so, so yeah, it's, it, it's, and it, you know what, part of what it is, is um, you're working with an, with the, maybe the only, certainly the preeminent abstract art form. Everything else comes through the senses. And even as you're working with this abstraction of language, you're trying to make it sensual. You're reading it aloud, you're mumbling it aloud, you can feel the sentence rhythms. Uh, me, I've got music playing, which I'm pretending is part of the writing. What kind, so, what kind of music? Oh, I play the same kind of meditative... <laughs> If you played it at a party, you'd empty out the room. <laughs> I get it, though. You don't want anything that's too intrusive, right? Well, I want a mood. Yeah, I'm looking. For, I'm looking for mood. Uh, so you know, I'm, I'm looking for a soundtrack, and I've I've got the soundtrack, and I'm I'm writing. I'm writing the the play, the story, the scenario. You know, I'm I'm writing what's going on before the eyes, even as I'm, even as the ears are making me see it. So okay, so if you let's say you're writing a story and you mm -hmm. and, and you're looking for this mood, you're looking to find in music whatever, you know, ineffable something that you're trying to to articulate and then you land on a song that nails it. Um mm -hmm. maybe even before you do in writing. Like mm -hmm. and you and it takes you what? A month, two months, however many weeks to finish a story. Will you mm -hmm. sit there and listen to that same song on repeat the entire time you're working? Well, I've got a whole collection of stuff that uh, sooner or later I'll wear out, but I'll listen to it incessantly, uh, and I, I, I differentiate it. From, I love all music, but I'll differentiate it from stuff I'd listen to in a car, for instance. Hmm. Um, you know, there's certain labels. There is a label in particular, ECM, 
where um, Manfred Eicher, is it? Or, wait, Manfred, I'm, I'm now confusing him with the pay. But whoever runs that label obviously has a sensibility that I feel very close to. Wait, it's, e, it's ECM? ECM, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of jazz. One of the things he, he doesn't seem to do is he doesn't seem to draw lines between this is jazz and this is new music and this is ethnic, this is world global, you know. And I, I don't either. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm looking for border crossings. And, and so the music, a lot of stuff that I want on the page, I'm hearing. And, and I'm very comfortable with that because it means I can't exactly fudge from it. I can't copy it. It's not influencing me. It's not influencing me in terms of the way if you read too much Hemingway, you get influenced. Right. It, but, but I'm hearing in it something that I've already want want my stuff on the page to read like. And so, you know, in an entirely made-up way, made up by me, um, I'm hearing all kinds of, of, of parallels. And um, it, in order to write, you have to enter that kind of imaginative sphere. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little uncomfortably close now to making things sound mystical or whatever, but... I mean, you, you, you know, you don't sit there and write in the same way, hopefully, <laughs> that you do, you know, do, do other things. Teach, for instance, or, or you know, what, um, do your checkbook, whatever. I, I mean, you have to, it, it's, it, the, 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 the mind, we have all these different layers of, of intellect and, um, and, one of the ways, one of the things that I think it's necessary to do when you sit to write is to find a way to stop censoring yourself. Because if, if you walked around trying to live life, um, say you have children to take care of, or say you have a profession that you're practicing beyond writing, besides writing, or whatever, just cooking your food, you can't always be on, at least I can't, you can't, can't always be on that, that imaginative level. And one of the things that music does for me is it allows me to stop censoring that level and, and to permit myself to exist on it for as long as I'm working on this piece. Now, I have friends who tell me that it's just, you know, again, it's a matter of how you're wired. Joyce Carol Oates, um, who loves music, uh, told me one time, she said, I, Stuart, I, I, when I put on music, I have to listen to music. It will keep me from writing. So, you know, really, it just kind of depends. I'm not, it, but, but for me, it, it's always been a way that I've worked. Well, hey, whatever works, right? Yeah, exactly, whatever works. So, okay, part, then, of, part of learning to write is, in fact, learning the little tricks that you're going to use on yourself. Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk a bit more about how you do the work. And, you know, has it changed over the years? Are you somebody who's really regimented? Um, do you work, you know, are you one of these people who can kind of, like, binge write and get a story in a week, or uh, are you more methodical? No, I wish I was. You know, every once in a while, but rare. Um, I, I certainly have friends who do what you're talking about, and uh, 
<laughs> you can't help but be envious. Yeah. But I, I'm a I'm I, I'm a slow writer, and I I have to get into that that world in order to do it. So you get like early in the morning. You get up every day and do it, or you you know. Well, I try to write every day, but um, I I'm I've been pretty helpless about picking the time for doing it. They and that you know that's changed. I don't know exactly why it's changed, but for a long time it was late at night. Um, kind of changed to something else. I don't I don't you know I I think it's just curious why that might be, but I don't think it's essential to the. To the process, exactly. Um, I, I well, maybe for some writers it is. I mean, I've read interviews with writers where they say I I have to get it done between five in the morning and whatever time, eleven o'clock, and then I have the rest of the day. Um, again, you know, I read that and I wish that I was uh, wired that way. But when the, the times I've tried to emulate it because it sounded so wonderful, <laughs> I've been successful. And then you're up at five and you're like, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I suppose. I mean, some people are really genuinely morning people and they just yeah. love that. No. That, it, peace, that peace in the morning and, and having, and, you know, and for other people, they, they just, their lives have taken a shape where they can't do it any other time. Yeah. The, the, kid, the kids wake up at, and have to be off for school at such and such a time or whatever. So it, it just varies from, from person to person. And, Really, I, for me, the only thing you can draw from it is not what time you should do it or work like this person or that. It's just that you have to find what, what fits your own existence. So, and, and how do you know when a story of yours is working? Like, is it just a completely intuitive thing? Is there, have you noticed over the years, like, there's something that happens and you it clicks into place? Yeah, I suppose I... Um, the, the one... The one, um, the only real thing I could think of along the lines of the question you're asking is that the vast majority of the time I know a story is working if I suddenly get the ending about two-thirds through. It just comes to me. Because most of the time I don't know how the story's going to end. And I, I want that to be the case. But as the story moves along, I start to worry if I don't have an ending. And, and usually out of the blue, suddenly an ending will present itself. And when it does, I, I know it's there, and then I kind of almost shield my eyes from it. I, I know it'll be there waiting, and I don't want to look at it too carefully. But suddenly the whole story has now... Um, a story that seems like it's just been running along from one thing to another has a target to aim at. That's got to be a. Re- I feel like that's a relief. It's so, so it's nice when you know the end. <laughs> yeah. And so, what about beginnings? Like, how do these things originate for you typically, or is there is there a way that's common? It, it's usually all instinctive. I, um, I, you know, I, I I write different kinds of stories, so I in some ways. Now, if I'm writing a story directly from memory, uh, you know, a story that whether I'm going to call it fiction or not, I know this has basically happened, that's really going to be a different story than a story that's starting out with an image that's fascinated me. And to, in order to explore the image, uh, the, 
means, which are all associative. But there's a point at which associations with an image can become narrative. For me, that's one of the most beautiful moments, movements in writing fiction. Um, so, I, I mean, many of my stories take that form. Uh, because I write poetry, uh, 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 any number of my stories have started as poems. Uh, so That's interesting. And, and they've been... They've started as poems, and somewhere in trying to work them as poems, some kind of strong narrative moment has, has occurred that I never thought of when I began writing it as a poem. And once that narrative moment in there is in there, I have plenty of friends who are poets who will adapt that narrative moment to the poem. For me, I'll usually let go of the poem and follow that narrative moment into a story. So, for instance, the story that gets anthologized a lot, Pet Mill, that, that's exactly what happened with that story. That, that story, for at least a year and a half, was a poem I'd take out every so often and mess around with a little bit and then give up on it and put it back in its wrappings. Uh, I, I, just, I love still lives, and I wanted to write a, a kind of an urban table and... Uh, it didn't. I didn't realize for a while that it was my grandmother's table. Hmm. But the, instead of a bowl of flowers or a bowl of fruit or one of those beautiful things Matisse might have on the table, <laughs> right? I had a I had a can of condensed milk, <laughs> right. and I was. I finally thought one day, when yet again the poem wasn't working, why, why the hell am I trying to write about the skin of condensed milk? Right. I thought, wait a minute, it's my busha, and somehow. At that moment, it just took off, and um, I just let it go, and it became a story. See, that's, I mean, because, you know, you say you don't want to make things mystical, but there is something sort of, you know, the about the process and how it all works and how it's got to lurk there in your subconscious, and eventually, you know, the timing is right and the thing comes out when it's ready. But uh, it also well, it it's also a, a matter of patience. I think a lot of writers might not have the patience to keep noodling with that poem or to keep entertaining this this image of a you know a canned milk do you know what i'm saying like are you you consider yourself a really patient person i guess when i'm persistent maybe stubborn even but uh i when you sit around you know at the end of a workshop and talk about how long you've been working on some of these pieces almost everybody in the class is ashamed to say how far back some of these things go Right. You know, I want to just jump to back to a thing we talked about earlier, which is that when, when you've got a, an image that's fascinated you, you're already starting with what, I, with what Elliot would call an objective correlative. But the odd thing is that when you say a writer wants to have an objective correlative, it, it sounds like the writer then immediately makes this up for a story the writer's telling. Well, actually, it, it works in, frequently in a, in a clearly, uh, totally bass-ackward way to, from that. That is that you've got this image that fascinates you. It's already an objective correlative. It's just that you don't know what it's an objective correlative for. Right. And the messing around with it, the working it and reworking it, waiting for it to become something, is that you you felt on some deep instinctive level that it's an objective correlative for something, 
But you haven't figured out what that something is, and it's only by messing around with it that after a while it starts to reveal itself to you. And 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 and, and now it's turning into a story that you you it, the that that writers who start out with that with that image they you know they I, well I'm repeating myself but they they know that image means something but the but part of what the writing is about is to figure out what the hell they're writing about right right so with the uh, the book that you're working on now uh, and I'm assuming it's a book I mean do you feel yeah. co- confident that it's a book the the memoir slash novel. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how did it start? How far? You said you were ninety pages into it. Like, do you feel like you've got a, a ways to go? Um, I'm at least the third done, and I, I mean, I know what a lot because it's so autobiographical. I know what a lot of the. Um, I mean, it's just going back to something I said about Toby Wolf, uh, and he's hardly alone in this. It's just there's a lot of stories I've told over a lifetime that um, I could tell when I told them aloud that they had, forgive me for using that word again, currency. Uh, people laughed, people listened, and uh, I stopped telling them because one of the things I didn't, one of the things that's, when I said that if writers need to know how they're wired, part of learning to write is learning how you work. By work, I don't mean sit and work. I mean, what, what is it that works in you? And uh, a, a huge danger for me is if I tell a story too many times, I can't write it. Um, in, in fact, sometimes if I tell a story once, I can't write it. And the reason is that I'm no longer writing it. I'm trying to tell it the way I heard it, even though I'm the person who told it. <laughs> right. And to try to tell on the page to try to write on the page a told story for me is more difficult than to just, you know. Again, I, I have friends who, in order to write it, need to tell it a hundred times. So, I, you know, again, everybody's just radically, it can be radically different. It, it, what works for me, what inhibits me can be just the opposite for another writer. But, um, Anyway, a lot of the stories that, um, yet episodes in this uh, book I want to write that that are there to write are are pieces that are almost set pieces in my memory. Well, I certainly, I wish you well on it. I mean, I know that the, uh, I mean, I guess you just said that the challenge is trying to write what you've already told. So hopefully, hopefully you haven't told a lot of these in a while. You've given them a rest. I have. Intentionally. Okay. Shut them, shut them up in a hat box in the back of the closet. <laughs> well, it's been such a great uh, pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to do the show, and I, and I wish you well uh, as you work this book to its end. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your interest. All right, there we go. That is Stuart Dibbick. Go check out his work, The Coast of Chicago, Childhood and Other Neighborhoods. I Sailed with Magellan and several other books. Thanks to Kill Rock Stars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, don't forget about that app, the free official Other People app. Have you heard of this thing? It's the best way to listen to this program. You download the app. It's free. It's available wherever apps are available. Uh, you can listen to the most recent 50 episodes free of charge, and then if you want to stream uh, the archives, you can just uh, sign up for premium for like a couple of bucks. It's very cheap. 
So go do that. Go get the app. It's free. The Other People app. And don't forget about uh, Sweet Spot, today's sponsor, that app. Check that out. That, too, is free in the App Store. So I'm actually on my way out uh, the door momentarily to go to a cafe to self-consciously write in public, if you can picture that. Uh, I'm going to try to uh, order a beverage every 90 minutes in an effort to placate what I imagine is the uh, intense resentment of the person behind the counter. But the thing is, if you do that, if you actually try to be a decent human being and earn your table at this coffee shop, then you got to pee a lot, <laughs> which makes it hard to concentrate and get work done. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a conundrum. This is what I'm up against existentially. Please remember that F. Scott Fitzgerald's body was first interred at the William Wordsworth Funeral Home in Hollywood and that Modigliani and Satan were once living in such dire poverty that they shared a single cot and slept in shifts. That's it for now. Uh, thanks once again to Stuart Dibbick. Great to have him here. Uh, genuine honor. Thanks to you guys for listening, and uh, I will be back again soon, as I always am. I am reliable. You have to give me credit for that. I reliably deliver so that you have something to listen to while you are on your uh, speedboat. Speedboat. <laughs>